Welcome to the Political Economy Forum podcast. My name is Nicholas Wittstock. I'm a fellow at the Forum and a PhD student in the Political Science Department at the University of Washington. Today I welcome Professor Victor Minaldo. Also on this podcast is Jesse, who is a friend of the Political Economy Forum and works for one of the big tech companies. In this episode, we talk about misconceptions related to science and liberalism as well as democracy. So, Victor, who has misconceptions about any of this? Uh, I think some of our students have misconceptions mm-hmm. about liberalism. And I think lay people have misconceptions because the conversation about liberalism is sometimes monopolized by the media or politicians or, or well-meaning folks that might not have the entire background on what liberalism is, uh, the purpose of academic freedom scientific enterprise and what that entails. So it is a bit of a straw man to say there's misconceptions. That's just an easy way to say, let's set the record straight if there are misconceptions, right? Without casting aspersions on anyone. I I don't know. There are 300 and what? Or maybe let's talk about first what you think those misconceptions are and why it's important to talk about them or to correct them rather. Let me ask you though, because you know, I like to pass the ball back to you in these situations. Do you feel there are misconceptions about these three terms or what are your views? The most important misconception in this broad context, I would say, is that um, it's one around liberalism and the importance of liberal ideology for liberal democracy. The way in which liberal values inform a lot of the political, cultural, and also economic institutions that guide or govern much of life in uh, modern liberal democracies across the globe. I think what people usually refer to when they use the word democracy is liberal democracy. Ironically, though, I think people assume that a lot of these institutions somehow grow out of the practice of voting of um, preference aggregation through a process that uses some sort of uh, tool to measure whatever the majority opinion on a set of topics is. But I don't think that that's all that relevant to, to a lot of those institutions that ultimately govern our lives. I think it it's, has a lot more to do with liberalism, with liberalism as an ideology. Do you agree with that? Let's see if Jesse wants to take a pass from us. Um, not a pass in that we're passing on the question, but we're passing the ball to, to Jesse. As a private citizen, as someone who's not necessarily navel-gazing in the ivory tower, uh, what are your thoughts when these when you hear these three terms, if any? Yeah, I think uh, with liberalism, I think of just like general norms around rule of law and how we comport ourselves and our values. Um, I don't really have anything beyond a kind of a squishy feeling definition beyond that, but it's kind of what I think of like polite interactions between citizens and um, peaceful transition of powers. But really, I don't know much beyond that. And I, with academic freedom, the only thing I think of is tenureship, but it's this idea that, you know, like we need to protect voices that are not necessarily representative of society at large to kind of push discourse and push research. And I, I see value in that, but I, I don't have much of a feeling beyond that. It's not something I think about on a daily basis. And what's our, our third topic? Science. science. Yes, science. It's uh, important. Hypotheses, testing, 
innovation, but obviously like really not things that I think of that much in a kind of abstract manner. They're all uh, kind of big ideas that we interact with, but I don't know. Um, aren't things, aren't topics that I, I necessarily think about a lot, especially liberalism. I think that's the, the squishiest of them all. Jesse, really quick. I'm just going to say uh, we, we have Jesse on the podcast today who works for a big tech company. Hello, Jesse. Hey there. Sorry, Victor, I interrupted you. Not really. Um, I think then if liberalism is the mother of all topics and that the other topics, uh, the other concepts like academic freedom and science flow from liberalism, maybe we'll start there. So when I think of it, I think of values, rights, and institutions. And the important thing about those things is that they are beyond partisanship and beyond ideology. And especially in the case of the United States, our two major political parties, the Democrats and Republicans, have their origins in liberalism. And until recently, this was really uh, what set the United States apart in some sense from other uh, countries, including other developed industrialized countries, but also um, constrained the parameters of what those two political parties did, their political platforms, the things they said rhetorically, the types of political coalitions they built. And the elephant in the room, really, I think, when someone says something like that is, well, what about the Republican Party today? Is that really a liberal party, small L? That's a great question to ask, right? Because I would want to press you on, well, what would be a, an illiberal, a political party that is not founded on liberalism? Does that even make any sense? And what of would that party push for, right? Like, what would be their platform? What would be their interest? Well, let me then... Uh, that's a great segue into let me finish the definition and then let's think about parties that might oppose the basic definition, right? The idea that individuals are born free and equal and are worthy of respect. The idea that government should be limited in their power and ultimately accountable to citizens. The idea, and this feeds right into science, the idea that facts, logic, and evidence are superior when it comes to governance when it comes to public policy, to opinions, and specious reasoning and anecdotes. And another extension of this is the separation of church and state, for example, where matters of state are not guided by faith or divine revelation or anything like that, where faith leaders don't necessarily have outsized authority. Although obviously one of the implications of liberalism is pluralism and the idea of having many voices at the table. It doesn't rule out faith having a role to play, but um, not any, not a role that is uh, paramount or that trumps uh, the role of other uh, voices at the table. And then another aspect of liberalism that even the Republican Party, I think until recently, was an adherent to is the idea that the pursuit of democracy, human rights, and science can lead to genuine social progress. And not to just pick on the Republican Party, there are critics of the Democratic Party that say that on the extreme left wing, there are folks who reject these tenets as well. Now, in a sense, we're creating straw men or straw women by saying on the two flanks of each party, there's extremists that reject liberalism. 
but they're at least in the conversation these days around the water coolers that are social media and the leading newspapers and even academics, there's this idea, is liberalism on the ropes? Are there illiberal voices and political platforms? Have, have the parties turned illiberal, right? And the short of it, in terms of your question, what is an illiberal party? Well, it's a party that's nativist, that's inward-looking, that's protectionist, that's xenophobic, that peddles conspiracy theories, and that downgrades the importance of democracy, human rights, and science, right? Does that mean that a liberal party cannot be nationalist? It depends on the definition of nationalism, I suppose. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I don't know. What do you think? Um, so the reason why I'm asking is that because I believe that there are fairly few explicit anti-liberal political parties, at least today. Um, I think there are anti-liberal political movements outside of uh, formalized political organizations, for sure. But I think what you rather see quite commonly are anti-liberal tendencies or there being sort of a maybe a formal or a, a pretend adherence to liberal principles, but not so much an acceptance of what that means in reality, right? So you have um, a lot of talk, but not much real commitment to liberal uh, to liberalism. So I would say that 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 I see as the bigger issue, right? That you have political parties or political movements or politicians who commit to liberalism in word, right, and say, yes, of course, I am pro democracy. Yes, of course, power must be constrained. However there are these exceptions where that's not the case. However, we all know that X is the right way of doing things, so we don't need to talk about that. However, we all um, agree that um, this is an opinion that should be outlawed, right? Or something like that. So I worry about that a little bit more, that I think these concepts are always um, leaky in terms of that some elements of uh, ideas like liberalism fall out of the concept uh, over time. And also, I think they're, they're permeable in the sense that people put in new things and call that liberalism. I think a major task of uh, social science, I suppose, is to provide coherent um, definitions of those concepts, right? To, for, for people to be able to make sense of reality. Yes, well, the illiberal part of me wants the listeners of today's podcast to just accept my definition wholesale full stop, right? Exactly. But uh, uh, yes, it's ironic in a sense that I, we're being a little rigid, at least I am, by saying there is a clear definition and maybe you can stretch it, but stretching it might do violence against its meaning and its implications. Maybe the easiest way of doing this is to say what is liberalism definitely not? What are clear disqualifying qualities? Well, again, it would be questioning the freedom, equality, and dignity of human beings. Mm -hmm. It would be relaxing the belief that government should be limited and accountable to its citizens. It might entail the elevation of lies, conspiracy theories, rumor mongering, propaganda, etc., over facts, logic, and evidence. And it might say, oh, democracy doesn't really matter that much. Or human rights, they can take a back seat. Science, what, when it's convenient. The separation of church and state, well, it depends on the day. Ask a, not on Sundays. I don't know. I guess to me, it's a pretty 
clear definition and it's not a hard judgment call when you see things that are outside the bounds, whether they be emanate from the right or the left. So it seems to me you're a little bit more sanguine than I am when it comes to, are we in an illiberal moment? You seem to vacillate in your answer where for me, there are certain alarm bells that have been triggered. And you know, part of that could be the misconception about the origin of liberalism, its evolution, the fact that I strongly believe and it's not just a belief. I think there's a lot of evidence behind the claim that it's a birthright of humanity. It's a project that we've undertaken as a species since we were able to speak and organize and moved out of Africa 50,000 years ago. It doesn't belong to any one race or ethnicity or class of people. It's constantly evolving, yes. And maybe that means the boundaries are kind of porous or there's contestation or debate around that, but within the bounds of liberalism itself. Jesse, do you have thoughts on any of that? Yeah, well, my opinion is that you, you said that the definition is pretty clear cut, but you jotted off like 10 different seemingly unrelated or maybe tangentially related aspects around science and I don't know, a few different things. Like, it doesn't seem very clear cut to me. It, it seems that you could be liberal in certain ways and liberal in others. And so to to, to pose it as something that's clear cut or binary seems pretty difficult. And I guess the other thing I would challenge is you kind of stated this as like a natural evolution of the way humans organize. And is this the final organizational structure or are we are we destined for something beyond this? Like if you talk to any socialist, they they would they might say they might take on some liberal um, philosophies, but then issue others. So I, I don't know. I I I'm less convinced on some of these arguments around A, it being a clear-cut thing, and then a natural evolution. It, it, it seems like we just might be on you know, the path towards something else at this moment. So I think my main concern is that I agree that there is, you can provide a clear definition of what liberalism is or has been historically. However, once the rubber meets the road, it just gets really complicated, and that creates dynamics that ultimately can develop away from what it is that you initially defined. What do I mean by that? If you say the government or a central tenet of liberalism is that a government should be accountable to its citizens, who are citizens? At what point do you give rights to people who migrate to a country? Um, do they have any rights? Do they have the same rights in terms of uh, human rights as, as citizens of the country that you're speaking of? You define things as important like science and free speech. I think those are great ideals, but how do you negotiate those things in practice, right? Like what happens when someone says, you know what, I don't think we should listen to this expert, but rather someone else, because uh, this expert is actually saying something that is more aligned with my interests. So I'm going to go with this expert, right? I think there's a lot of things that still need to be sorted out once you um, actually try to adhere to those ideals. And I think that's where um, you then also quickly get into debates or issues where it is possible for people to take ideals that are broadly within the liberal canon and develop them slowly into something that, that, that moves away from those initial ideals, if that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, one of the principles of demographics, genetics, and statistics in general is drift, right? There's a drift mm -hmm. around a mean, and there might be a non-stationary process where the drift is an extension of the basic idea being transformed and evolving in unexpected ways where the mean itself changes over time. And in this case, it's not a mean per se, but it's, I suppose, 
the set of concepts inside of uh, that thing we call liberalism and the definition of those concepts and what they what they entail, right? And that's true of anything in life. I do think, though, just to push back a little, liberalism in a sense is a process, so it's not surprising that you have constant negotiation about the things contained within liberalism and the boundaries of liberalism. You might get unexpected results and you might get very serious drift from let's say what a lot of people like to pigeonhole as the origin of liberalism which i think is a huge mistake the enlightenment era for example but i think you have to be a bit schizophrenic about it in the sense that you have to accept the fact that it's a non-stationary equilibrium so to speak with a lot of drift but always remember the core concepts and discipline the conversation and the negotiation by what i think are clear strictures that are not negotiable. So you just have to have the courage to stand up sometimes and say, it is part of the liberal tradition to have this conversation, but it's not part of the liberal tradition to discard the key tenets that allow the conversation to take place in the first place and to allow us to make progress on the conversation. For example, by having a process that adjudicates claims about the world, that is science, that is dispassionate, and that does not depend on ideology or idiosyncrasy or someone's personality or um, biography, for example. So there's give and take, there's elasticity, there's drift, all these terms. Uh, but by the same token, you've got to have drift from something. You have to understand where you're standing in order to recognize what you're drifting towards. And part of liberalism is the idea that human beings have ownership over this stuff and can pull things back. They don't necessarily have to accept all drift and that it's out of their control. This is not a religion. It's not something exogenous to human interaction. We have the power to say, as liberals, that is illiberal, and we're afraid of where things are going. Yes, let's have the conversation, but let's draw lines in the sand as well. And that's why I think addressing misconceptions and, and um, clearing the record is helpful. That makes sense. Jesse, what do you think are the main concrete challenges to liberalism as Victor lays them out? For someone who's not thinking about this in this abstract sense on a daily basis, but what do you feel like are things in society around you that you are perceiving that would challenge those things that Victor is describing? Like, wh what is the development that we're trying very hardly, I think, to 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 make precise, right? To make concrete. What is what is happening that we're so concerned about? Yeah, I think I'll speak to it from a perspective of a someone in a he lives in New York City. I most of my friends are pretty wealthy. We all have great jobs. I see a lot of my friends adopting pretty extremist political views, uh, mostly on the left. And there are, you know, are obviously people in other parts of the country who are adopting pretty extreme views on the right. And so I think of a lot of my friends are just very passionate about the world right now and upset about the things they're seeing on TV or reading on Twitter. And or maybe like wanting to suppress people's viewpoints. It's really common among my friend group to just think that like we should be arresting people for what they say on the internet or um, maybe to a lesser extent removing their posts I also see this like fervent support for things like uh, packing the court, which to my mind, and maybe I can't tie it to the exact pillar of liberalism this maps onto, but that seems very liberal to me. It, it's politicizing institution that is supposed to be kind of like this this uh, sacred governing um, institution, or you know, the the freedom of speech thing is like 
that's something that we've learning our entire lives is a very important basis for our political philosophy as a country. And I, I see a lot of just kind of move towards extremes. And these are people I might, I might say like that have good jobs that aren't in a bad position, but for whatever reason, and maybe you and Victor can comment on the, the reasons for this stuff, but like these people are being pushed to the edges of the political spectrum. So I think ideology has changed recently. I'm not exactly sure why. That is maybe allowing us to like consider relaxing some of these norms in a way that I think is damaging to liberalism. I think just to add on what Jesse just said, we're going to share um, a recent post, a recent uh, newspaper article by by Larry Diamond on the increasing acceptance or increasing justification for political violence in the case of political success by another side and by another by an opposing political faction, by an opposing political faction. That that would be the most extreme version of what you just described, Jesse. Right, that you are unwilling to accept political victory by those who you disagree with because you disagree with them so fundamentally that you're unwilling to accept them making any political decisions to the extent that you're willing to at least condone violence. Victor, what do you think? What what are your thoughts? I think maybe the biggest threat or one of them or one I can speak to, let me qualify because I don't, hyperbole is never good for any debate or for progress or in the case of liberalism, for a solid examination of liberalism. But one thing that's lacking is a sense of history. How did we get here? Why did we get here? Where does liberalism come from? What are its benefits, both intrinsic and instrumental? What is it like in countries that are illiberal? And why might we worry about some of those patterns we see in in those other countries? I can say one thing about a, a warning some of these examples offer us. There's a lot of, there have been a lot of uh, experiments in the 20th century in particular with utopian post-liberal social and political orders. And one of the elements of that is where one side finally vanquishes their political and cultural opponents. And their political project is to usher in a golden era where they finally have to stop listening, engaging with and arguing with and compromising with a vile, reprehensible, wrong, and maybe stupid adversary who has been standing in their way. There's a final victory, so to speak. The problem, or at least what you observe when that happens, is that the struggle for power doesn't stop. It actually gets worse. There's an escalation of uh, violence and an escalation of conflict because there are attempts by the winners to root out all opposition and dissent or to make their life easier by getting rid of whoever might be in their way or in the future might pose a threat. And you get endless show trials, purity contests, endless purges, so-called disloyalists. You get a feral struggle for power that culminates in totalitarianism. Now, the most obvious examples are fascism in Italy, in Germany, in Spain, in Japan, its version in the run-up to World War II, the communist revolutions that swept over Russia, China, and Cuba. Obviously, Vietnam is another example as well, North Korea. The Ba'ath Party's reign of terror, more of a, it's hard to really put it in any category. It had left-wing ideas, but was inspired by the Nazis. This reign of terror visited the Middle East during the 60s and 70s with countless deaths, violations of human rights, 
purges, coups, revolutions, counter-revolutions, and wars between countries in the Middle East and beyond. And these aren't the only examples, but they're the, definitely the most extreme. That's a way to say, let's just understand what the what is the alternative. So if we're not going to use liberalism to domesticate and adjudicate our debates, and we're not going to tolerate each other and respect each other and use restraint and forbearance, if we're not going to allow winners to take office and the losers gracious, graciously accept their victory, but say, let's fight to... Uh, or let's, um, sorry, step back and regroup to fight another day, according to the rules of the game, and let's win office by convincing our fellow citizens that we have a better way. If instead you're going to use violence or declare the winning side illegitimate, well, let's understand what we might be headed for by looking at history or by just using logic and deducing the inevitable outcome of that, which is a pitched indefinite battle between implacable enemies that are seeking to destroy each other. And I suppose those are just things that we should just be clear about. That's one of the misconceptions, I suppose, maybe not a misconception, but a lack of critical analysis of history or just critical analysis of what the logical conclusion of some of these campaigns are. And I must say, I, I failed to mention that the other side of the coin with liberalism is that the incumbents accept defeat and also regroup to contest politically according to the rules of liberalism, in this case, elections and campaigns and lobbying efforts, what have you. So both sides have to play by the rules of the road. In this case, the rules of the road are liberal rules and discarding those rules, let's be clear about what it means. I suppose that's one of the misconceptions. Yeah, maybe biggest misconception about liberalism or what politics is in a liberal democracy, right? And I think you really summarize it as the fact that the goal of politics is not ultimate victory over your opponents. The post-utopian idea of pluralism in a liberal democracy is really the acceptance and tolerance of different opinions and to coexist and to say compromise and share tolerance, forbearance is better than to try to somehow win over and impose your will on other people or to create completely pure and monolithic societies, which may be impossible, right? I think that's really the, the main ideological undercurrent of pluralism and liberal, liberal democracy. We, we could discuss why we're at this moment, right? Like, why did we get here? Why did we get to a situation in which people don't feel like that's possible anymore, right? I think you mentioned that for that to make any sense, it's important that all sides agree to certain rules and that can genuinely think that the, pe the people who win a majority over me in the opposition, in the minority, are not going to create laws in a ways that threaten my ability to live life according to my own ideals. That doesn't necessarily mean that I have to fear for my life, right? But it could mean that I just don't think that I can live my life in a way that I want to if an opposition wins. But Victor, uh, what are other myths that uh, surround liberalism? Okay, so there are two categories of myths. They're both uh, drinking from the same fount or fountain, if you will. And the fountain is liberalism is a sham perpetrated by dead white men for the benefit of living white men and it doesn't speak to the rest of humanity or the problems faced by non-white peoples around the world. And the facts just do not agree with that thesis. On the one hand, liberalism's origins have 
nothing to do with dead white men, although the Enlightenment in Europe during the 1700s is an important transit point, as are other transit points on the long journey and process that is liberalism. And the other piece of historical evidence that violently disagrees with this thesis is that liberalism has been used since time immemorial by people who lack power to get a seat at the table, to have their equality and freedom honored, and to get dignity and equality in the legal sphere, to get more opportunity in the political sphere and in the economics. The thing about liberalism, though, is it's never satisfied because liberalism is a project. It's a process. So there is no utopia. And if you compare reality to some nirvana or some utopian benchmark, it will always fall short. But the key thing to realize if you look at history is the best vehicle to get closer to liberal ideals, equality, freedom, justice, greater equality of opportunity, and a bunch of other things connected to that is liberalism, is that project. It's not an illiberal project that gets us further away. And again, I mentioned those historical examples, be it from the right or the left or things that defy ideological categorization, like Gaddafi's regime in Libya, for example, with his little green book that is just completely incoherent. So would you, is it okay if I speak about the origins of liberalism and then discuss examples where liberalism actually advances social justice and the agenda of, of the disenfranchised and disempowered? I like that, yeah. Okay. Let's get the record straight. Where does liberalism come from? Its heritage draws from the entire world. Before the agricultural revolution, individuals who came out of Africa, human beings are African, coming out of Africa and spreading to every continent except for Antarctica, they lived as hunter-gatherers in small bands that are, were larger. They became tribes and clans and uh, eventually civilizations when we get the agricultural revolution. But the way they survived was by being liberal within a small community. So the idea of cosmopolitanism or a liberalism beyond your tribe, that had its day later. We might thank the Enlightenment, but even before that, the Roman Empire for that idea. But before that, we had liberalism at a micro level in terms of deliberation, debate, to make collective decisions, and to interact and pursue both individual and collective interests. There's very strong evidence that our ancestors coordinated cooperated, shared, and compromised. Fast forward to the ancient Greeks. We could look before uh, them to some of the great civilizations in North Africa that they drew on and some of the civilizations in the Middle East. But let's just fast forward to the ancient Greeks. They invent democracy, valorize reason, and practice rudimentary forms of science, but they were not Europeans in the modern sense. They were part of a international system that was much more about the East and the South than it was about the West, where they look to the, again, North Africa or the Middle East for their inspiration. Their DNA, in fact, traces to Iran, Egypt, and Turkey. And then we get the Roman Empire, where leading citizens, politicians, and scholars from North Africa and the Middle East not only recognized the precursors of liberal tenets, like freedom and equality, but contributed to that canon. Very leading politicians and scholars from those areas, including modern-day Lebanon, for example, or other uh, countries like Iran. The Muslim caliphates of the Islamic Golden Age, they practiced religious tolerance and furnished women with significant rights, including uh, economic rights, including inheritance rights, for example. And sure, they weren't 100% uh, liberals in the modern sense of separation of church and state or 
a bill of rights where uh, religious minorities had 100% protections under the law, but they were incredibly tolerant and, and charitable towards minorities. Uh, not always, there are episodes that contradict that, but these were thousand year runs of political and social organization. And so I would put them as a transit point just as importantly as I would put the Enlightenment. And then I would argue against folks that might say, well, liberalism is a white man's game. If you look at the avatars of modern liberalism, those statesmen and leaders that I believe get closer to what the ideals are about, you look at Gandhi in, in India, you look at Mandela in, in South Africa. In the United States, we have three giants, Martin Luther King, Robert Moses, and John Lewis, all civil rights icons who stressed nonviolence, individualism, freedom of conscience, but equality and um, other tenets of liberalism. And I would argue Barack Obama, a progressive, a Democrat, you know, people tag him with all kinds of labels for whatever reason. But if you look at his speech and uh, record, if you look at the example he set, he, to me, is one of the greatest, in a sense, role models, forbearance, mutual tolerance, restraint, respect, freedom of expression, human rights, etc. Again, he's not a saint. It's not like he didn't contribute to the war on terror, for example. It's not like Guantanamo didn't stay open under his rule. Uh, it's not like he wasn't a politician who had coalitions he had to appease. But he was not illiberal. And in terms of some of the extreme things you see on the left, he doesn't, he's not a good fit for some of the things going on. In fact, he's on the record chastising some of his friends, colleagues, and uh, co-conspirators when it comes to uh, being in the same political party. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. And saying, you know, some of this stuff you guys have to cut out with the cancel culture and the purity contests and demonizing people that you don't agree with. I could go on to why liberalism has been good for the disenfranchised and the powerless, if you'd like, but do you you and Jesse have reactions to this? So it's my first time hearing it. And um, I guess to me, it's not, I've never really thought of these things in the, in the lens or as a, uh, oh, this is a, a white man's ideology or philosophy. So I guess like the argument's really interesting to me, but I've never actually confronted that argument for the first place. So I think it is interesting that you will consistently place liberalism as this kind of like eventual kind of natural order that evolved from history as opposed to something that people thought about. I guess the way you're posing it is that this is the culmination of maybe some of the most basic things around cooperation and people getting along in society, which I'm kind of question, but I, I don't have a good retort to you right now. Victor, do you see it as like a natural evolution of humans just getting along and this is just the, the thing that would have happened? Or do we have leaders to, to thank for this evolution? Is it is it man-made or is it a natural kind of evolutionary thing? Well, just quickly, because I want to hear Nick's remarks. I, I won't use the word natural because everything about human beings is not natural in that it is cultural. I mean, we are different from other species in that we have a culture and our culture evolves, but our culture is under our control to a certain extent too. On the one hand, I think liberalism is artificial, but everything about human beings in a sense is constructive. On the other hand, there is a gravitational pull though about long-lived successful communities inevitably circling back to liberal tenets, even if they don't express them as such, and they don't codify them the way that the philosophical luminaries of the Enlightenment 
put pen to paper and said, let's articulate this. But I do think a lot of what they did was epiphenomenal in that they looked at human history and they looked at their societies and they thought about what worked and what didn't. And so it wasn't an invention from whole cloth. They get a lot of outsized credit because they wrote it down and they formalized it. They institutionalized it and it went on and it lived on in actual constitutions and political projects. But I don't think it's natural and it's not necessarily inevitable either because a lot of it is being aware of it and having conversations about it and arguing on its behalf. I hope that clarifies things. Nick, do you have things to say about what I originally said, Jesse's retort and my follow-up? So it's interesting to hear that Jesse says he's never encountered this idea that that liberalism or liberal democracy is a Western European construct, which is a meme I think that is extremely common both on the political right and left, where the political right generally valorizes what they see to be liberalism as a Western European tradition that, I don't know, in some cases, maybe other cultures might not be ready for or something like that. Whereas I think a lot of people on the political left would rather see Western liberalism as an imperial project. Um, I think I agree with Victor that both of those things don't really add up. I think that, yeah, liberalism may not be natural, as in like everything is man-made in the sense that like you do need people who step up and make it happen, that things aren't going to fall out of the sky. At the same time, there are a lot more organic in different places at different times. There, there may be much less counterintuitive than those accounts make it seem, right? Like this idea that like, oh, it was just a bunch of genius people in Western Europe who came up with this and nobody else ever had the wits to do so, that's, that's ridiculous, right? That's not, that's ahistorical. In the same way to say that this, these are things that have always been imposed on other peoples across the globe, that is not exactly historical either, right? Because a lot of these things originate in other places. A lot of these ideals originate in other places. In Mexico, the first indigenous, indigenous president elected to office in the middle of the 19th century, Benito Juarez, was the strongest proponent of liberalism. And he was fighting for the rights of indigenous people, but also other people that historically in Mexico had been oppressed. And he's not the only one. If you think about the spokespeople for folks that have been sidelined or ignored uh, in different countries, they inevitably, even if they have not read John Locke or Rousseau, if we want to call him a liberal, Adam Smith or Immanuel Kant. Did I pronounce that correctly, Nick? Do you want yes, to yes. correct Oh, I did? Okay. Uh, but inevitably, using just logic and using just their wits, as you said, and thinking about stepping back and thinking about what it means to be human, they draw on the liberal tradition that I, again, I think is the birthright of humanity. And historically, if you look, there's reasons to say that. It's because it far antecedes the Johnny-come-lately Enlightenment philosophs, who we should not discredit. They had a very important role to play, but we shouldn't give them more credit than due. And you're right. It's the ideologues on both sides that might have different reasons to discredit the liberal enterprise that have ahistorical and specious arguments, I would say. So looking just inside the United States, if you think about our country's promise or promises about freedom, equality, and justice, and dignity, and the progress we've made in terms of the expansion of liberty, equality, and justice, you see again and again liberalism being used by the weak 
against the strong in, or, in, in terms of speaking not only truth to power, but to their conscience and their morality and their humanity. And it's the fact that legal and cultural protections around free speech, freedom of assembly, due process, the ability to protest were not always furnished to these peoples. And they used the promise articulated in uh, the Bill of Rights in the Declaration of Independence and somewhat in the Constitution and then reformed uh, afterwards, especially after the Civil War, to call out hypocrisy and to call out the gap between the aspirations and the reality. And so here are some examples. Who needed freedom of speech and assembly the most in the pre-Civil War South and Southwest to oppose slavery, right? It was uh, African-Americans and people that were looking to stop slavery. Those were the people who were denied rights, basic liberal rights, right? Again, the story replays itself with freedom of expression and assembly for African-Americans during the Jim Crow era in the South. Native Americans as well, they did not have freedom of expression and assembly, as did other people in the United States on the frontier during Western expansion, and definitely could have used it, and some of them fought for it. There was no freedom of expression and assembly for Mexican-Americans. They were massacred by the Texas Rangers in Porvenir, Texas. There's a very um, depressing but also uh, amazing documentary on PBS. I think anyone can download it from Amazon on this pogrom that happened and, and where Mexican-Americans were denied their, the rights that would be afforded to them under liberalism. If you look at pacifists or anti-war advocates, they're in need of liberalism the most when they're trying to dissent and speak their mind in the run-up to wars, like in the run-up to World War I in 1917, for example, where pacifists were censored. During the 1950s, let's look at ideologies. There was a disgraceful example at the University of Washington during the McCarthy era, where the president of the university, Raymond Allen, fired three tenure professors who were accused of harboring communist sympathy. And they were censored, they were fired, they were ridiculed and ostracized, not only in their communities, but they lost their jobs. And this didn't only happen at the University of Washington, but it happened, as most listeners probably know or, or should inform themselves about, writ large in Hollywood, uh, in the media intellectuals and the intelligentsia, even outside of academia. And the final example, there was little tolerance for anti-war views during the early years of the Vietnam conflict, where the dissenters, the pacifists, those that spoke to their conscience were silenced, they were persecuted, and they were ostracized. And these aren't the only examples, but they're big ones. And so I would say to skeptics of liberalism, what's your alternative? What's your alternative in terms of making progress and helping people who have been marginalized historically? I think this track record is pretty good. Could it be better? Of course, that is one of the liberal ideals, which is always to make progress and to improve things. But again, I'd argue that the best vehicle is liberalism itself. Yeah, I think, Jesse, we really would like uh, to hear more from you about um, your opinions on some of the stuff, your insights on yeah, what you think are the most relevant topics here in this context. So, yeah, so I think, Victor, you provided a bunch of examples where kind of liberalism was the, the avenue or the mechanism that, uh, the, or the tool that was used to kind of confront some sort of, I don't know, oppression or discordance in power among different groups or anything like that. Like, are there examples where non-liberal methods were more more effectual, I guess, in, in making change? I, th I think of like, right now, thinking about my friends who are kind of maybe more on the extreme of the left, they might say that, you know, we've tried reform through kind of liberal 
discourse, maybe violence or maybe something slightly more extreme is necessary in this moment to achieve equality or maybe achieve some of the things that we care about in liberal philosophy, but like aren't achievable in the current framework. I mean, they might say that, but I would ask them to put their money where their mouth is and provide systematic evidence. I have not done that today. I'm using anecdotes from history, but we have done it in previous podcasts. And I have written a lot in my own research about the overwhelming empirical support for the contention that liberal democracy far, far defeats its alternatives when it comes to measurable outcomes that human beings care about in terms of prosperity, human rights, environmental stewardship, the quality of life, rights for minorities, equality of opportunity, even egalitarianism on the economic dimension, even though, on the other hand, market economies do exacerbate inequality and material outcomes. But in terms of absolute living standards, absolutely no question that liberal democracy wipes the floor with its alternatives. And I would argue material well-being is probably the most important starting point because if you're starving and your children uh, don't live into uh, adolescence and you're sick or you don't have a job or you're exposed to risk and poverty and all kinds of other terrible things, we might not even get to the point where we're talking about other rights uh, that are a little bit more about liberty and inequality and the like. But I don't want to bore listeners right now with the record. I mean, social scientists have and, and political scientists in particular have spilled a lot of ink adducing evidence for this. I just wrote a book with Michael Albertus, Authoritarianism and the Elite Origins of Democracy, where we show on a host of outcomes how liberal democracies tend to do uh, much better than illiberal ones and uh, dictatorships. I'm not that we are not the only uh, folks to do this. There's been a, a lot of other uh, research in, in this realm. So maybe listeners could pour over uh, previous podcasts and look through the blog that we have on the website uh, and look at some of the books that we've uh, recommended. And maybe we'll put more on there. Actually, the North Wallace and Winegas Violence and Social Orders book is another heavyweight hitting advocate for the overwhelming logic and evidence about why liberal democracy is much better for things we can measure. But I, I would argue then, if you have some other thesis, and, and you being an abstract, you, not you, Jesse, or anyone in particular, I would love to see the evidence. And as a scientist, I will always be open to changing my mind if the evidence shows me that I was wrong and had the wrong priors on this, that I, I'm somehow misguided. All this scholarship I keep citing, there's a fatal flaw in it or, or my own work. Maybe it's biased or, or just wrong. The good thing is I don't have to rely on my own work because we're in a, a large part corroborating the essential idea that liberalism outperforms any other alternative. But that's what I would say in response to that. It's not an article of faith. It can be stated as a hypothesis. And as social scientists or even lay people, let's do the hard work to actually figure out whether that's true. So I would say that there is a dilemma, though, that I think Jesse really puts his finger on, right? What happens if there is a significant amount of people within a regime that may or may not be a liberal democracy that say, I believe, we believe that our institutions have frayed too far from this liberal ideal? And it is, in fact, no longer the case that political decisions are made in a, in a way that is actually respecting the rights of significant numbers of people in this country. So now us just participating in the formalized political institutions provided by the system is in fact not helping anymore. So we need 
to conduct some sort of extra legal, extra formalized, extra political process um, action to right this situation, right? To like push this um, this system back towards liberal democracy, maybe even. Because, for example, it, I mean, were you in an authoritarian country, right? Were you actually in an authoritarian regime? I'm not sure uh, liberal democracy is going to get you very far, right? Like liberal ideals. Uh, do you disagree with that? I disagree. I disagree in that the focal point, the, the rallying cry, what galvanizes people to leave authoritarianism behind is never more authoritarianism. If you think of the Eastern European revolutions, all colored revolutions, I suppose they could have said, let's impose some left-wing or right-wing authoritarian regime to correct the errors of history. And I don't have, you know, access to that counterfactual world where they do that. But it just seems that, would that really work? Are people really going to fight for democracy and freedom and equality when the rally and cry is, let's oppress and destroy the people that are in our way? That doesn't mean we can't use restorative justice or the rule of law or some kind of framework for restitution and the like. That all happened after the Eastern European revolutions, and it's happened in other parts of the world. It happened after the Nazis, correct, Nick, in Germany, uh, where we used international law to punish some of the perpetrators of those atrocities during World War II and, and hold them accountable. But I guess this is more a logical conceit rather than a empirical one, even though I believe the empirical evidence is on my side, I don't understand the reasoning that culminates in, we have not reached our ideals, we, we're not living up to our aspirations, therefore let's relax one of the key elements of our aspirations, which is nonviolence, tolerance, respect, forbearance, discussion, debate, compromise. Let's relax that in the gamble that somehow by relaxing that and perpetrating violence, we'll be able to return to a pure form of that. It's just logically, there's a problem there in the logical train of thought, or maybe there's something wrong with me and someone needs to explain this to me Nothing wrong with in you, a better way. Oh, well, there are many things wrong with me as uh, my family can attest at times, uh, but uh, maybe not in my logical reasoning there, but thoughts from any of you on this. Yeah, I don't, it's a really good response. I pose that question, not because I necessarily disagree with you, but because I think I see that calculus going on in a lot of people's heads these days, right? If we can't get what we want out of this current order, do we need to, do we need to do something? Do we need to use violence? Do we need to use maybe some manipulation to an institution that kind of violates our concept of liberalism or, or they probably don't think those terms, but you know, our, our general ideals to achieve what we want. I, I think that's like a common mindset today in this country, maybe on the fringes, but it's interesting to hear a retort that idea. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that, yeah, I ultimately I disagree that this is not an illiberal democracy just yet, right? So I think any, any push for violent action is completely counterproductive. And, and and uncalled for. I I do and and morally wrong. I mean to advocate for right hurting or killing a, another human being just doesn't make any sense. Let's just be honest. It doesn't make any sense. But for instrumentally, any right? Yeah, I think that. I mean, of course, I don't want to 
necessarily make a moral argument, right? But I think even instrumentally, right. I think instrumentally, it does not make sense to to call for violence because um, we've discussed this in podcasts previously. Right? Any radicalization of one group within a political system will provoke a counter reaction, especially in the context of a liberal democracy, right? Because you're then afraid of that other group. And that feels like it gives you justification in radicalizing yourself because you feel like, well, if those guys get into power, then we're going to be screwed. So I think that that is right. just a wrong way of going about it because you're, you're creating the opposite of what you think uh, you're going for, right? Like you're not evaluating the situation sufficiently dynamically. You think that you can just statically radicalize your own point without changing other people's uh, political positions. That is such an excellent point, Nick, because in fact, by violating someone else's rights or by scaring them into thinking that you're not going to respect their political freedoms or their ability to express themselves or affect change or whatever, if you transgress against their rights, they won't trust you any longer. And then the, the ball game becomes absolute victory because exactly. you've threatened their rights. So they're going to threaten your rights. And in, in, in response, they're not going to, going to stand down. What you've done is sent them a signal that, oh, we've now elevated the stakes of politics. And we, this is an existential threat. And when things are an existential threat, why should I play by the rules? So both parties are in an escalatory situation, a spiral of violence or mistrust, where the only logical move from their perspective, logical, not ethical, but logical, meaning how do I advance my basic rights and interests, is to see you as an implacable enemy, because that's what you're saying to them. So it doesn't make any sense in terms of the reaction you'll get in terms of the dynamics of the situation or the strategic elements of, of what kind of response you'll see from the other side of something. Yeah, I, I, I think that's that's um, a fundamental issue. And it's it's hard to diffuse at that point, right? Because it kind of requires selfless leadership on one side and a leap of faith for sure, which is not necessarily a situation that you want to be in where you're reliant on such selfless actions. That being said, I think we should um, switch gears a little bit and maybe talk about another misconception of liberalism, if you want to call it that. I know that both of you wanted to talk about academic freedom and how that fits into liberalism and tenure. And uh, I, I definitely think that we've discussed a lot of the misconceptions at this point. I like to talk more about liberalism and it's kind of like practical application as opposed to the abstract theory behind it. So academic freedom is an important element of liberalism that people might also misconceive or have misconceptions about. Victor, what are your opinions on that? Well, actually, if Jesse doesn't mind, and I'm not saying he has misconceptions about academic freedom, but what are some of the ideas circulating out yeah. there about academic freedom and what like it's it. supposed to do and its limits and, and the like? Yeah, that would be amazing. Jesse, if you don't mind, what are your friends' opinions on the state of academia or what are people's general or your own yeah. For, yeah conceptions of like how do they perceive universities yeah i think there's probably diversity of opinions on it i think the average person with a regular job with an with a, a college degree might think of you know academia or, or college in general as like a, a place to get a job right um and so we have professors who teach us and we do homework we take tests and, and then we get a degree and then we go on to our lives and obviously you all know that like research and let's say debate and some of these other forms that you guys create within academia 
are important at a meta level, but maybe like not certainly things that I necessarily pay attention to. And even as someone who was in a PhD program at one point, but dropped out. So I think like I can recognize, hey, I know that academics and professors and PhDs are really responsible for a lot of technical technological innovation. A lot of the things that we hold sacred around things like liberalism have come out of universities. So I, I think I people like myself like can recognize that there's some va value in this kind of special corner of society, right? You guys aren't like necessarily the public or private sector, but you get run by different rules and um, have different traditions and kind of most other workplaces. Um, that said, I will say that like someone like me, I, I don't particularly understand why a political science professor like Victor, who's tenured, should enjoy a level of protection in his workplace around being able to say things or have opinions that someone like, you know, myself who works for a tech company, you know, why does he have that, that protection? Is his work a more inherently important and should he be protected? I guess I understand why I think we want to foster like diversity of opinion, but should we just let someone like Victor say what he wants and be able to get away with it? Are there consequences? Even if we do believe in this idea of like freedom of speech, for, from our professors and people in academia, like are there downstream consequences on the, the market for these jobs that create kind of an unfair landscape for others? Um, I'm not fully convinced that tenure is the best mechanism to promote academic freedoms, although I do appreciate that some level of academic freedom is necessary for development of new technologies, for a development of new philosophies, for kind of pushing the discourse in general at the societary or at the societal level. Well, let me respond in a modest way, just by defining what I think academic freedom means. And I'm not necessarily going to apologize for it in that I'm going to offer a full-throated defense, but I'll tell you how there are a few things that we can do with academic freedom that are beneficial for the campaign that is liberalism and democracy and science and the good of our society. So I'll start by saying that the way I understand academic freedom in the social sciences, let me say, because I, I do acknowledge and respect differences between the humanities, social sciences, natural sciences, and drama, uh, art, other disciplines. But in the social sciences, it is the idea that scholars who, who work in higher education should pursue truth above all other objectives. And if that's true, there are some things that logically and practically follow from that. What does the pursuit of truth mean in social science? It means that we are going to be devoted to facts, logic, and evidence, and that to contribute to the pursuit of truth and knowledge, we shouldn't be pressured by governments or our employers or popular culture or anybody else to pursue some lines of inquiry over others in the pursuit of facts, logic, and evidence. More importantly, perhaps, though, we should never presume the answer to a question before using the scientific method or other objective processes that our peers could, can at least use as a yardstick to evaluate us uh, with. I'm only talking right now about the social sciences and political science in particular, so I'm going to prioritize the scientific method, but that that's the way we should do things. That's the way we should figure out the answer. We shouldn't presuppose the answer. So then the question is, well, why do you need tenure to do all that? And then I'll get to why all that is important. You need tenure to do that to protect scholars from pressure and intimidation 
and fear that their livelihood, reputation, honor, safety will not be compromised if they do that. It's almost like the witness protection program. We are like witnesses to the truth in a sense. Now, I'm not trying to make us out as victims or martyrs or a special endangered class. We have a lot of benefits. It's a lovely life. I love my job. I get gain a lot of satisfaction from it. There's nothing about it that I'm upset about or, or where I'm seeking an unfair deal that other people don't get. That's not the, the point of this. So I'm not dreading my job, nor am I seeking to punch above my weight and say my job is so special that I should be treated with kid gloves. To use a different analogy, put on a, a golden pedestal or something like that. But it's not easy sometimes to pursue unpopular lines of inquiry or reach inconvenient conclusions if the scientific method is what impels you to do that. And it's not easy. And therefore, if we value these things, we should come up with a system that creates the incentives to pursue these lines of inquiry and that protects folks from the downsides involved in pursuing these lines of inquiry and perhaps reaching inconvenient conclusions. And uh, tenure is what we've got. So Nick, do you have any responses to this? And then I can speak a little bit about why tenure is important and why these things are important for society. I mean, I think it's just important to create a space in society where you can debate and think out loud uh, that isn't subject to the same pressures as public and private sectors in exactly the same way that Jesse said it, right? And I think tenure is part of that. I couldn't agree more. That's exactly the instrumental value of tenure. So why is it we protect professors in that they cannot be fired for speaking their mind or for sharing their insights or for even opinions that are informed by their uh, knowledge, their research, their teaching, et cetera, right? And it's the case that it's the best instrument we have to create that protective cocoon that you don't see in other realms like for-profit industries or even nonprofit sectors where there's a political or social or normative agenda. It's definitely not the case in politics because politicians have incentives not to tell the truth sometimes or to be ideological or to seek answers using motivated reasoning and confirmation bias to reach an answer they've already come up with or that they are biased towards for whatever reason, be it ideological or because their political coalition is satisfied by that answer or uh, galvanized by that answer. If you think of artists, they have a different endeavor. It's not necessarily truth, although that could be part of it. If you look at communities of faith and, and you look at priests and bishops and leaders of those communities, they have a different obligation, and that's to give spiritual succor to their flock and to interpret their scriptures. I can't think of another area of life where the search for truth is the guiding principle and another area of uh, another uh, business like the university where those that govern the university realize that it's not always easy for flesh and bone individuals in societies to do that, to devote themselves to that objective because we are human and we're not necessarily automatons that only care about facts, logic, and evidence. We're emotional, moral creatures. We're political creatures. And so even myself, I wouldn't trust myself without the proper institutions or incentives to come up with a system that would reward this. I'd be afraid that I would deviate or defect from such an arrangement when it was convenient for me. That's why tenure, like the lifetime appointment of judges or other institutional or organizational structures, has the right incentives and opportunities to allow a very privileged group, professors, to do this as their life project, as their craft. 
that doesn't mean there's not abusive tenure by some, and that doesn't mean everybody pursues the truth, and that doesn't mean that the word truth isn't contested and the scientific method isn't imperfect, but it does mean that we are unique in that sense. And I do believe because of the fact that we're humans and political and social creatures, that we can't trust ourselves to do it as professors, and we can't trust others to respect their ability to do it without very strong commitments and very strong protections. Now, do you think it potentially kind of degrades equality when you're provided, and, and I know tenure protects you from certain, you can be fired, but for maybe fewer reasons than the rest of the world. Looking at someone like Nick, who presumably wants to go in the academic job market, there might not be a lot of slots available to you, even though you're a young, innovative, obviously very smart candidate, but you might not get the sort of jobs that would be afforded to you in any other market because there's a glut of tenured professors out there who have this cushy gig that they'll never leave. In in my world, we have a kind of a cleansing of the of the old ideas with new ideas. Um, as new technology, as new like programming languages become the the norm, and and basically you have this disruption that leads towards innovation. I'm curious if there's a a belief that tenure tenureship might actually actually slow down the new ideas that might be entering the academic world. You know that is a cogent hypothesis, in that I see the assumptions and how from those premises you arrive at your conclusion. And it could very well be the case that it's true. I don't have a dispositive test one way or another to say that's true versus an alternative view, which I'll offer. And the alternative view is that what tenure does is it selects a a certain type of person that has the gravitas, abilities, knowledge, talent, work ethic, and level of productivity, and just needs that protection so that they can always align those things with the goal of pursuing truth. And so in a sense, it's a screening device. Rather than something that creates moral hazard, what that means is something that creates perverse incentives. It's like a sinecure. It's like a life appointment where then you just go play golf or relax on the beach or you stop improving yourself. As your human capital depreciates, you just let it atrophy, right, or, or rust. This is based on logic and anecdote, but if it's a screening device, then you've screened hopefully the right people. Not always, there's false positives and false negatives, but you've screened the right people. And now that they're protected, not that they weren't pursuing the truth before because there's very strong incentives to pursue the truth in academia, but now they can pursue even juicier questions, bigger questions with larger normative implications. They can say things they might've been afraid to say before that they hadn't necessarily thought about too deeply, but now they have the opportunity and protection to do so. So I suppose that's a alternative view of tenure where you don't run into the same trade-offs or the same pitfalls that you alluded to, right? Because these folks want to work, they want to do science, at least in social science again, and they want to look at the big beefy things that matter. And if you can protect them, they'll do that. And moreover, they'll speak truth to power when things come up in society. And the last thing I'll end with is that's why tenure should matter to everybody out there. Because if we are this class of people, you know, we're not better than accountants or doctors or lawyers or construction workers or first responders or plumbers or anything like that. We're all doing our part. I'm not saying that there's something special about the life of the mind where we deserve praise and accolades and higher pay or whatever. What I'm saying is it just so happens that in our society, we've imperfectly come up with this arrangement and this solution, and we're screening for the people that can do that. And 
and we're protecting them to do that, well, that's great for our society because that does lead to innovation and ingenuity and economic development and prosperity, but it also leads to civic education. It also leads to a better sense of history. It leads, in fact, to the identification of injustices and problems with our uh, system. In the previous half, uh, the first half of this conversation, we talked about liberalism, its promise versus the reality. Well, professors are living proof of liberalism success in that they're doing the project, right? They're saying, here's what our research shows. You know, maybe the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, uh, some statutes on the books, they say they want to do these things that improve the lot of these folks or those folks. But in reality, they're falling really short. And let me show you the evidence. And let me even give you advice based on an evidence-animated approach as to how you could redress these problems, right? So in a sense, we could be part of the social engineering project that moves liberalism forward because we can provide the facts, logic, and evidence that might help fine-tune some of these solutions. So that's my pitch for why we are important and why tenure matters and why we sh maybe it's imperfect and it's there are better systems, but unless someone comes up with that, I, I, I think this is good enough and, and we're doing the job we're tasked with. And if anything, we need more tenure, let me be honest, because what's happening with tenure is it's becoming a privilege for few there, as more professors are hired as lecturers or lack protections. So my pitch is actually let's double down on tenure and get more truth seekers and more truth tellers out there. Doesn't tenure create this need for kind of a second classes? And I, I say that with all due respect to anybody who's an adjunct professor or a lecturer, where it becomes too expensive or too long-term of a commitment to hire someone who would be tenured, that there's a need for someone that has way fewer protections um, maybe not even a guaranteed contract beyond the quarter of the semester. Um, and, and this is kind of, uh, you know, only exists because there are a glut of um, white-haired old professors who've been at the job for 40 years. When there's a, a new crop of younger people out there that, that could be more relevant and also have more job security. Those are all fair points. Again, an empirical question whether the tenured older folks are holding back the younger folks or it's a zero-sum game, right? Any win for them or, or lifetime appointment for them. Uh, it's not lifetime, by the way. At some point, we do retire. But those protections mean that we're too ex we create a, an academia that's too expensive. And therefore, to satisfy a growing student population, we have to hire part-time folks with fewer protections. But an alternative way to think about things is we should have more funding. So our funding has been gutted, especially when it comes to public universities. State legislatures have been cutting the money that they give us versus after World War II with the baby boom generation and the returning GIs uh, going to school with the GI Bill. Uh, it was a growing industry. But I'd say more than that, we could find ways to make academia more productive. We could find ways to maybe generate more revenues on our own by being entrepreneurial and being more innovative. And I'm all for that. I think disruption is okay. I don't think it's necessarily in contradiction of tenure. And again, I would just circle back to maybe a solution is to hire people and also give them tenure, but be able to afford it by being more productive and generating more money and pushing out the demand curve uh, by encouraging more people to attend school. Uh, not necessarily at a higher uh, uh, tuition, at a lower tuition, perhaps, if we are more productive and if we get more support.
now there's deeper questions about where the money's going to come from and where state legislatures get their budgets and the lack of productivity since the 70s that Nick and I have discussed on this uh, podcast in prior episodes and the like. But I think it's a fruitful debate we should keep having, and I do respect your position. Uh, it could be true. So I, I'll hold that possibility out. Victor and Jesse, thank you so much and speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long, and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback, and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.